The Abbey Theatre opened its doors for the first time to Dublin audiences on Tuesday the 27th of December 1904, 75 years ago. It was called the Abbey Theatre for the simple reason that the pit entrance, the front of the old Mechanics Variety Theatre, was on Abbey Street. And there were no gongs at Curtain Up. That was the inspiration of the actor-manager Michael J. Dolan at a much later date, to summon the players from the comfortable green room when the play was starting. Maybe Willie Fay struck the stage floor three times in the French manner. More probably, he was content to dim the house lights and raise an amber glow on the black and orange striped curtain, and the very first of thousands of performances was on its way. The Abbey Theatre, the National Theatre Society's production for the first time on any stage, on Volius Strand, a play in one act by W.B. Yeats, and Spreading the News, a comedy in one act by Lady Gregory. On Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday... Kathleen Nahulkan by W.B. Yeats, and on Wednesday and Friday, In the Shadow of the Glen by J.M. Singh. A grey building at the corner of Marlborough Street and Old Abbey Street was the foyer. It had for a short time been the city morgue, and during the rebuilding, the rumour went around that a baby's corpse had been found in the debris. It turned out to be a rather battered plastic cupid. Across the coping stones on the top, one could make out the words Savings Bank, still vaguely visible when it was demolished to make way for the new building in 1964. But little could be done with the pit entrance on Abbey Street, a dismal Georgian facade which gave the local wits every encouragement to refer to the shabby theatre. Will you come to the show at the old Abbey Theatre? Will you pay half a crown and not know where your knees are? To see the best plays of true Irish manufacture, you'll get crick in the neck and your back you'll almost fracture. Will you come? Will you, will you, will you come to the Abbey? It has no bar at all, all the patrons there go thirsty, mooching round in the hall, feeling ill at ease and crusty. There was many a lad who refused to do the penance, and who saw every play from the Snug and Tommy Lennons. Will you come, will you, will you, will you come to the Abbey? Will you come to the play, pay your tanner at the door, tis the year of our Lord, 1904. Old Ireland at last has a theatre of its own, you're certain there to laugh, or you'll have a cone, a cone. Will you come, will you, will you, will you come to the Abbey? How did it start? Was there an only begetter? And was that one William Butler Yeats, the tall, cloaked central figure in a trio of Singh, himself, and Augusta Gregory? He certainly thought so. John Singh, I, and Augusta Gregory thought all that we did, all that we said or sang, must come from contact with the soil. From that contact, everything entails like grew strong. We three alone in modern times had brought everything down to that soul test again. Dream of the noble and the beggar man. Edward Martin saw it somewhat differently. Mr. Yeats discovered some people trying to act in a little hall among the by-streets of Dublin. Their acting and performances were puerile, if acting is to be considered more than feebly drawing out of the words and stage managing more than occasionally wandering about the stage at individual whim. Mr. Yeats at once pounced upon these most unpromising players 
and proclaimed a wonderful discovery. He proclaimed their merits in his most dictatorial vein until they actually got to believe it themselves and even to show signs of some improvement. Meanwhile, the mediocrities, taking their cue from the dictator, went about fussing over the art of those players until they made them notorious enough to attract silly little people with silly little plays like Kathleen the Houlihan and the Pot of Broth, to the amused surprise of those who were in the habit of thinking for themselves. St. John Irvine, the Belfast playwright and critic, was much more emphatic. The Abbey Theatre is thought by those who are ignorant of the facts to have been founded and largely maintained by Lady Gregory, that monumental widow who went about swathed in weeds and crepe as if she were Queen Victoria's understudy. It would not exist but for the substantial sums which the Manchester lady, Miss Annie Elizabeth Frederica Horniman, bestowed upon it. Those who are familiar with errands will not be surprised to learn that she was treated with ingratitude. William George Fay, who with his brother Frank had started those young people trying to act, according to Edward Martin, was more emphatic still. The Abbey Theatre was first and foremost a theatrical, not a literary movement. It was the creation, not of men of letters, but of actors. It is true that it discovered many dramatists of ability, and at least one, J. M. Singh, of genius. But the playwrights were, so to speak, a supervening phenomenon. It was the zeal of the players that provided the conditions in which they were able to emerge. What bound us together was enthusiasm for the art of acting. Maureen Hewley's recollection was quite different again. For most of us, it had begun quite simply a few years before, in what was at that time one of the smaller nationalist clubs working in Dublin, in Enina Heron. We used to hold classes and debates, encouraging the study of Irish history, music, literature and art, and for those of us interested in acting, there was a small dramatic company. The small dramatic company became the most unpromising players that so offended Martin, and eventually W.G. Fay's Irish National Dramatic Company, and finally the Irish National Theatre Society, which opened the Abbey Theatre in 1904 and has maintained it through its many ups and downs over 75 years since. But there had been an Irish theatre before that, at least it had called itself Irish, the Irish Literary Theatre. There has never been any doubt about who founded that one. In 1898, Mr. Edward Martin, my neighbour, came to see me, bringing with him Mr. Yates, whom I did not know then very well. It was a wet day and we could not go out, and though I had never been at all interested in theatres, our talk turned on plays. Of course it did. Yates plays, of course. The Countess Kathleen among them, and dear Edward's Heatherfield. The drama brings strange fowls to roost. What's that? Who am I? George Moore, of course. Need I introduce myself? Unfortunately, I was not there. I have tried so many managers, Lady Gregory. The fellow at the Gaiety in Dublin suggested my plays be rewritten by a competent dramatist. Uh, probably thinking of me. He thought the stories very pretty. He thought they should be made into operettas. Operettas, Edward? Uh, why not tell them what Archer, the critic, said about them? He preferred, he said, a piece of crude original sculpture to a piece of academic work. I am hard at work on a new one, Lady Gregory. It is giving me great difficulties. Is that 
the one you told me about, Mr. Yates, where all the characters have birds' faces? Only the dead ones. And I have changed those to man-headed birds. And what would London managements think of that? They are even terrified of Bernard Shaw. I have been thinking of Germany for a production. Why Germany, Edward? It's even farther away than London. Nevertheless, it seems entirely logical to me. In order to become truly Irish, Ireland must first become European. I have often thought that Dublin has more the character of a continental than an English city. Then all the more reason for you to put your plays on in Dublin. London, Lady Gregory, London. A small theatre in the suburbs, maybe just a large room. A small company of actors, a few gifted people. Uh, Florence Parr. Ah, I knew he would bring in Miss Farr, one of those clever women who disappoint their friends and admirers, but not Yates, of course, by not fulfilling their promise. Never had to work for her living, of course. That was the ruin of her, inclined on little or no provocation to chant poetry in a rasping manner while she plucked a stringed instrument whose single merit was that it had only one string which was easily broken. Next, he'll bring in Miss Horniman. There is a lady friend of mine, Miss Alicia Horniman. There. What did I tell you? She, I'm sure, would be interested. She put quite a considerable sum of money into the Avenue Theatre venture. Two plays at the Avenue Theatre London, a comedy of size by Todd Hunter and Yeats' Land of Heart's Desire. Poor Todd Hunter. The audience walked out on him. He was left alone with his family in a box at the end. A small theatre... A small audience. There'll be less of them to walk out. There are no actors in Dublin. Even the best of them speak as if they were reading something from a newspaper. Not one of them can read verse. Quarter tones are beyond them. Quarter tones, Lord save us. Why, he can't tell a high note from a low one. But how does one find actors? Do they come with a scenery? Or does one advertise? How much does one pay them? I think we should ask Moore to help us. The first sensible thing they've said yet. Moore has a knowledge of acting, it is true. After all, Edward, he has some good points. No, Yeats. I have known Moore much longer than you. He has no good points. Edward Martin is the most selfish man alive. He thinks I am damned, and he does not care. We have talked far into the afternoon, and we are no way advanced. Now, I am willing to start a fund for the production of Irish plays for Irish audiences. Not in Germany, Edward, or in London, Mr. Yates, but in Dublin. I will also contribute, and I am sure there are others. Hyde, Mahaffey. In the event, dear Edward paid for it all himself, and Lady Gregory sat down at her old typewriter. A brand new one. After all, the machine had only been invented. And clattered out, with the help of Yeats, a manifesto. We propose to have performed in Dublin in the spring of every year certain Celtic and Irish plays. Celtic Lady Gregory... Will that mean a play or two from Hyde? We must think of the Scots as well, Edward. To continue. Certain Celtic and Irish plays, which, whatever be their degree of excellence, will be written with a high ambition, and so build up a Celtic and Irish school of dramatic literature. We will show that Ireland is not the home of buffoonery and of easy sentiment, as has been represented 
but the home of an ancient idealism. We are confident of the support of all Irish people who are weary of misrepresentation in carrying out a work that is outside all the political questions that divide us. And they called it the Irish Literary Theatre. We founded a theatre, the old alma mater, we three, just Willie and Edward and me. We started a fashion, a touch of kiltartan, a few lines in verse, and the odd one in earth, a swear word or two, all green and none blue, a dash of mythology and a little codology. It was all a bit pompous, but it did cause a rumpus, you'll see. Augusta and Willie and me. For the good of the country, we had to do something. For one of our side, that strange Douglas Hyde, was making it stylish to converse in Irish, dear me. Just Edward, Augusta and me. So, Ireland is awakening at last out of the great sleep of Catholicism. What part could I play in this new awakening? An Irish Balzac, perhaps. A new Swift. Swift? Ah, oh, mon ami, Moore. Swift was a terror to his enemies. Uh, Moore has only succeeded in being a terror to his friends. Yet it was to me they came. Yeats in his cloak and Martin blinking like an owl close behind him, climbing the stairs to my flat in Victoria Street. So an owl and a rook have agreed to build in Dublin. A strange nest, indeed, they will put together. They hadn't the least idea how to set about the business. I had to go to their rehearsal rooms, dismiss the entire company and the stage manager. Do you know that Yates had engaged an amateur actor from Dublin who threw a chair at me when I told him he was no good, and a lady from the music hall to play his Countess Kathleen? I had to get Yates out of a bun shop where he was chanting verse with Miss Farr, and I had a difficulty with her, I can tell you. She would insist on lying flat on the floor to show us how to invoke the powers of hell. I sent Yates off for two weeks' holiday, calmed dear Edward, engaged Ben Webster as stage manager, and May Whitty as the Countess, told them to set about their business and return to Victoria Street and my writing. Dublin. May 1899. At the Gaiety Theatre, an American farce. At the Empire Palace, Mademoiselle de Dio in She or the Fire of Life. At the Theatre Royal, the Highwayman or Fateful James. At the Rotunda, Dame Clara Butt. And at the Ancient Concert Rooms, the Irish Literary Theatre presents two plays, The Countess Kathleen by W.B. Yeats and The Heather Field by Edward Martin with a prologue by Lionel Johnson. The company, rehearsed and ready, were conducted to Dublin by dear Edward, acting as manager, baggageman, and almost everything else. But a strange welcome awaited them. Margaret Webster, daughter of May Whitty and Ben Webster, tells of their arrival. The company found Dublin in an uproar because of the supposedly anti-Catholic nature of the Yates play. There were numerous rumours that the hall would be wrecked and the actors lynched at the first performance. Souls for Gold by Frank Hugh O'Donnell Surely the Countess Kathleen is a dainty dish to set before our sister England. Mr. W.B. Yeats seems to see nothing in the Ireland of the old days but an unruly and an impious and renegade people, crouched in degraded awe before demons and goblins, 
just like a sordid tribe of black devil worshippers of the Congo or the Niger. Michael Cardinal Logue, who incidentally had not read the play. I have no hesitation in saying that an Irish Catholic audience, which could patiently sit out such a play, must have sadly degenerated both in religion and patriotism. 33 members of the Royal University Dublin, but not including James Joyce. We are not opposed to a movement for the reform of the stage in Ireland, but we object to being compromised by such plays as the Countess Kathleen. Signed, Hugh Kettle, F. Sheehy Skeffington, Seamus Clandillon. Yeats sent the play to two priests, Fathers Finlay and Barry, but not before Edward Martin had resigned, not once but twice, the second time because Moore had sent him a most offensive letter. It was because he had neglected to find out what he really thought of the Countess Kathleen before it went into rehearsal. Poor Edward, he runs after his soul like a dog after its tail and lets go when he catches it. Anyway, all must have been resolved because a telegram arrived from Dublin. More! The sceptre of intelligence has passed from London to Dublin. My recollection is that we merely said, play a success. Even 80 years after, one can feel the excitement of the venture in the bare, wooden-benched, shabby ancient concert rooms. One can feel the sweet smell of success, almost hear the applause of a full house, and also the dissenting voices. Joseph Holloway describes the scene. The red-letter occurrence in the annals of the Irish literary movement took place at the ancient concert rooms, where a large and most fashionable audience filled the hall. There, a pretty little miniature stage, perfectly appointed, had been erected. When the curtain rose, everyone's worst fears were realised. A large section of the audience were determined that the play should not be heard. They kept up a steady, rhythmic stamping to drown it out. The actors faltered, then steadied then grew both angry and determined. They played with their souls, pitting themselves against the hostility of the house. Gradually the stamping slackened, stopped. Complete silence reigned for the rest of the play. Here is what Max Beerbohm had to say. Mr Yeats's aim has been to see whether beauty is after all possible on the stage. In the modern theatre, beauty begins and ends with the face of the leading lady. Despite the little cramped stage and the scenery, which was as tawdry as it should have been dim, I was from first to last conscious that a beautiful play was being enacted, and I felt that I had not made a journey in vain. What brings you here, saint with the sapphire eyes? I come to barter a soul for a great price. What matter if the soul be worth the price? The people starve. Therefore the people go thronging to you. I hear a cry come from them, and it is in my ears by night and day, and I would have 500,000 crowns that I may feed them till the dearth go by. You offer us? I offer my own soul. Moore almost missed the first night, and possibly might not have come at all, had he not heard a voice while walking down the hospital road in Chelsea, which said to him, Go to Ireland. I walked on, but had not taken many steps before I heard the voice again. Order your manuscripts and your pictures and your furniture to be packed at once and go to Ireland. The summons had come. 
Next morning, as I lay between sleeping and waking, I heard the words again. Go to Ireland. Go to Ireland. A vision rose up before me of Argosies floating up the Liffey, laden with merchandise from all the ports of Phoenicia, and poets singing in all the towers of Merrion Square, and all in a new language. Doubt was no longer possible. I had been summoned to Ireland. Moore expected a deputation, or at least some friends to meet him, but instead had to find his way alone to the ancient concert rooms. Yates' plays seemed to be going well, but in the middle of the last act, some people came on the stage and immediately the hall was filled with a strange wailing intermingled with screams. Yates, what is this? What is happening? Shh, Moore, shh. It is the cleaner, Moore, the cleaner. From Galway, you miserable man. You promised me the play would be performed as it was rehearsed. You have been wandering about from cabin to cabin seeking these women. Why is there howling from the gallery? The place is like a cat's and dog's home. That is not the keener moor. They are howling at the play itself. You must love your play very much to be able to listen to it in such distressing circumstances. Harsh, ridiculous scenery, absurd costumes, stage platform too low and insufficiently separated from the audience. Bring the curtain down at once. <laughs> Tell them who walk upon the floor of peace that I would die and go to her I love. The years like great black oxen tread the world and God the herdsman goads them on behind and I am broken by their passing feet. Oh. Oh. I haven't been shown Ireland as a land of endless enchantment, so perhaps the wisest thing for me to do would be for me to go away by the morning boat. An impulsive departure would be in strict keeping with myself, but for dear Edward. There he sat, chewing his cud of happiness, a turf from the heather field, slightly triumphant over Yeats, whose Countess Kathleen had not been received as favourably. A verse or two to mark the occasion from A.E.'s secretary, Susan Mitchell. I've puffed the Irish language and I've puffed the Irish soap. I've used them on my nephew with the best results, I hope. For with this older, dirtier George, I have no heart to cope. We have reformed the drama, myself and Yates allied, for I took small stock in Martin and less in Douglas Hyde. To bow the knee to rare A.E. was too much for my pride. But W.B. was the boy for me, he of the dim, warm clothes. And don't let on, I said it, not above a bit of a pose. And they call his writing literature, as everybody knows. The Irish Literary Theatre. Gaiety Theatre, Dublin, 19th February, 1900. Maeve, a psychological drama by Edward Martin, followed by The Last Feast of the Fianna by Alice Milligan. Gaiety Theatre, the 20th of February, 1900. The Bending of the Bow, a comedy in five acts by George Moore. Gaiety Theatre, 21st of October, 1901. 
Dermot and Gronje, a play in three acts by George Moore and W.B. Yeats, followed by Cossa and Tugon, a comedy in one act in Irish by Douglas Hyde. Red Hanrahan in Cossa and Tugon. Jen me chaine hoige mon, ni agen shid an turlar fuing, ni lante kasse sugain fein, hoige mon gan sun gan shen, groin gan yo er hoige mon, na wagen shid an turlar fuing, hoige mon emal shormren, na tinglo kasse sugain fein. The production of Casa Antugoin was the first Irish-language production in a professional theatre. It was first suggested that the Frank Benson Company, who were engaged to produce Dermot and Gráinne, should play it, learning the Irish by ear, so to speak, but happily that idea was abandoned, and a group of young players were found in Craveketenig of the Gaelic League, with Douglas Hyde himself playing the lead. Moore thought he could direct them. He hadn't a word of Irish, but finally handed over to a young man who had been a professional actor and whose name was W.G. Fay. I had already had the honour of directing the first public performance of a play in Gaelic. It was on uh, Tober Driachta, The Magic Well by Father Denine for Inini Neherden. My knowledge of Gaelic was not extensive, but my experience of producing amateurs was, and with Dr. Hyde to help me, I knew I could manage Caso and Tugain. I got all the actors to speak their lines in English first, while I gave them the business and positions. When they had got these right, we turned the play back to Gaelic and in this way put it together bit by bit. Apart from the Irish play, I had to give what help I could to members of Mr Benson's company, who were sadly worried with trying to find out who historically were the people in Dermot and Grania and how to pronounce the Gaelic names. There were three or four different pronunciations of Dermud, and Grania developed into Grañor or uh, Grania. I came away from the rehearsals more convinced than ever that these plays, if they were to be successful, must be played by Irish actors. His brother Frank was writing criticism for Arthur Griffith's paper, The United Irishman. The greatest triumph of the authors lies in their having written in English a play in which English actors are intolerable. Truly, Dermot and Grania must be even a finer play than I think it to have survived the vulgar acting it received. James H. Cousins, who was shortly to be involved with both the Fay brothers, was more specific. In the first act of Dermot and Grania, the actors fall asleep. In the last act... The audience do. Ah, said one of the actors, I see someone coming through the woods. It is Conan the Bald, and they are pushing him along. From the stalls came a voice, laden with the perfume of chocolate drops, and it sweetly said, Please ask them to push the play along also. The fools are laughing at us, said Dermot de Grogne. It was the truest word he ever spoke. With Dermot and Grogne and Cossa and Tugoin, the performances of the Irish Literary Theatre came to an end. Yeats had this to say. When we planned the Irish Literary Theatre, we decided that it should be carried on in the form we had projected for three years. 
We thought that three years would show whether the country desired to take up the project and make it a part of the national life, so that we could return to our proper work, which did not include theatrical management, at the end of that time. And a young man named James Joyce had this to say. The Irish Literary Theatre gave out that it was the champion of progress and proclaimed war against commercialism and vulgarity. It had partly made good its word and was expelling the old devil when, after the first encounter, it surrendered to the popular will. The Irish Literary Theatre must now be considered the property of the rabblement of the most belated race in Europe. Even the business-like Lady Gregory was uncertain. We hesitated what to do next. Upwaking and rebuilding is often for the best, and so it was now. And the very unbusiness-like Edward Martin was the very opposite. I am too unlike other people to be a success. Henceforth I will pay for nobody's plays but my own. George Moore finally departed after many farewells on a grey, windless morning, murmuring the words of Catullus, Atque in perpetuum mater ave atque vale. The curtain had fallen. But what was it, after all, but the overture? Perhaps a curtain-raiser. They had left behind a small but expectant audience. Now the scenery was changing. Other actors were assembling in the wings. The prologue had been spoken. The play itself was about to begin. Beginners, please! Beginners, please! Miss Maud Gone, Miss Maura Quinn, Miss Nee Hewling, Mr. W.G. Fay, Mr. Frank Fay, Mr. Dudley Diggs, Mr. Parik Cullum... To introduce the principal actor in this, in many ways the most important part of the story, let us hear one of the other players who has already been called, Maureen Nihuli. Willie Fay was a small man of indeterminate age, slightly built, with a battered felt hat, a long Macintosh, and an old briar pipe that he never seemed to take out of his mouth. Steel-rimmed spectacles perched a most dangerous angle on his rather thin nose. He used to ride an angular bicycle down to rehearsals each evening, stopping the machine carefully outside, then carrying it into the hallway with him. He was that sort of wanderer who cannot stay away from the stage for long and looked as if he would never settle permanently anywhere. And what about Frank, the elder of the two, always referred to by Willie as the brother? He was a slightly built man, like Willie. He used to sit rather uneasily in the background, surrounded by earnest young women who chattered unceasingly at him, while Willie held forth tirelessly in the most unexpected eloquence on theatrical matters. Probably Frank did not like us very much, but the deference with which Willie treated him on all occasions set him high in our estimation. He looked nearly twice Willie's age. His square-cut face, serious expression and deep, carefully controlled voice added years to his appearance beside the other, who had mobile, puck-like features which gave him a schoolboyish look. The Fay brothers had first appeared on the stage in 1891, when Frank went under the name of Frank Evelyn and Willie was W.G. Ormond, necessary disguises because of parental disapproval. It was at the famous Father Matthew Hall in what was billed as a screaming sketch by W.G. Ormond's combination. Soon they became the Ormond Dramatic Society, since the family lived in Ormond Road and had a special announcement on their printed programmes. W.G. Fay having long experience of the theatrical profession, is at liberty to attend amateurs. First-class fit-up and scenery for hire. Terms moderate. 
Sometimes the Ormond Dramatic Society appeared under other names. Mr. W.G. Fay's Celebrated Variety Company at the Coffee Palace. Mr. W.G. Fay's Comedy Combination with song interludes by Fred Hanna. Fred Hanna was to become one of Dublin's best-known booksellers. Frank, however, became a part-time critic writing for the United Irishman, and that brought him into touch not only with W.B. Yeats, but with Maud Gonne and her Daughters of Erin. He was asked by that society to put on some tableau of Irish historical subjects, but let him carry on his own story in his own words. These tableau having proved very successful, the Daughters of Erin decided on giving a similar entertainment later on in the same year, 1901, with the addition of a play or two. The production of those plays was put into my brother's hands, and to act in them he had the assistance of an amateur company which we had organized. At the performances of these plays, Mr. Yates was present, and said to me one evening at the fall of the curtain, I like the grave acting of your company, Mr. Fay. The play was The Harp That Once by Alice Milligan, produced by the Ormond Dramatic Society in August 1901 at the Ancient Concert Rooms, which shabby interior housed many similar productions in these early years, not all of them with the competence which was the mark of Frank and Willie. But let Willie carry on the story further. The event that was responsible for the formation of the first company of Irish actors was something that, at first sight, seemed to have no relation to it. One day, Standish O'Grady's All-Ireland Review published two acts of a play called Deirdre by A.E., which we found out afterwards was a signature under which George Russell always wrote. A friend of Frank's drew his attention to it, James Cousins, and Frank gave it to me. I said to Frank, here's an earliest play that I wouldn't mind trying to produce with our Ormond Dramatic Society. But where was the third act? We called on Mr. Russell. This is my brother Willie, Mr. Russell. He's the moving spirit of our little society. So you want to put on my play? Oh, yes, Mr. Russell. It's just the thing we were looking for, uh, the brother and I. I. I'm really not greatly interested in the theatre, you know. I... I went to see Yeats and Martin's plays, but didn't particularly like them, you know. That fellow Benson jumping all over the stage, and that wife of his is grown, you dear me. But we have our own actors, Mr. Russell. Only an Irish cast could do your play. Thank heaven for that, at least. But, you know, I never wrote the play for it to be put on. I, I never dreamt of such a thing. I, I just wrote it to see how such a theme... Deirdre, Nisha, Fate, the Ancient Gods. Uh, how did it all work out? Mr. Russell, it'll work out magnificently. But about the third act... Oh, m we, must uh, there be a third act? Oh, yes, Mr. Russell. <laughs> how else are we going to end the play? Uh, all this is most unexpected. Uh, what am I to put into the third act? The return of Nisha, Goa's vengeance... It is a scene worthy of Shakespeare. Or of George Russell. <laughs> now, mind you, I, I can't really promise, but... Well, if Yeats and Martin could do it, everybody seems to be writing plays these days. You don't want it very soon, do you? We want to rehearse immediately. Just the two acts. Would a week... A week? Oh, dear me. Well, I'll see what I can do. At least it'll do no harm to think about it.
The play needed far better staging than anything else we had done, and that would cost money. Frank said he was good for five pounds, and I offered to find the same amount. So we had a whole ten pounds with which to start producing the first big Irish play with an all-Irish cast. We got our little company together, but the cast of Deirdre was a larger one than we had ever before. So I formed a new society ad hoc, W.G. Fay's Irish National Dramatic Company, and while waiting for the third act, went on with Acts 1 and 2 at the Coffee Palace in Townsend Street. But where to perform the play? I had the idea that the Committee of St. Teresa's Temperance Society would lend their hall, seeing that we'd given a good many shows to help them to get the funds to build it. That turned out to be not ungrateful. They offered us the hall for three nights gratis, as well as the use of it for rehearsals. There was only one thing I'm worried about. Even with the third act, the programme will be a bit short. We'll have to fill up with concert items. Yeats has a new play. He's told me about it. He wrote it for Maud Gan. He's coming to rehearsal tomorrow night. Yeah, do you think he might? After all, he has praised our work. When he comes, be very careful, Willie. If he gives us the play... Oh, no, I won't call him Bill Butler, Frank. I'll be on me best behaviour. I had a dream, almost as distinct as a vision of a cottage where there was well-being and firelight and talk of a marriage. And into that cottage there came an old woman in a long cloak she was Ireland herself. Bill Butler, oh, I, I mean Mr. Yates, not alone let us have Kathleen Houlihan, but persuaded Miss Gan to take over the title part as well. Our cup now ran over, for as president of Inyinina Herden, Miss Gan was in fact what Kathleen Houlihan was in symbol. Her promised appearance assured us of the support not only of our own society, but of Cumming Isle as well. It was under the auspices of Miss Gon's society that our performance was formally given. There were no dressing rooms. We had to dress upstairs and get backstage through the auditorium before the audience began to arrive. Maud Gon arrived during the overture and caused a minor sensation by sweeping through the auditorium and the ghostly robes of the old woman in Kathleen. Frank Fay pursed his lips and stamped away in annoyance from his peephole in the proscenium. Most unprofessional. Deirdre was presented under a gauze, upon which Fay played a green arc light, giving the stage a ghostly, mist-like appearance. The characters had the appearance of figures rising out of a mist. Goddess or enchantress, thy face shone on me at dawn on the mountain. Thy lips called me hither, and I have come. I called thee Nisha. Knowing my name, never before having spoken to me, thou must know my heart also. Joseph Holloway was there. What performance did he ever miss? And he described the scene. Was present at the performance of Deirdre and Kathleen Nihulahan at St. Teresa's Hall. 
And were it not for the unseemly and distracting noises, such as snatches of popular songs, erratic dance steps, and the continual sound of billiard balls coming into contact with each other, wafted from an adjoining room, so that what most of the performers said was lost to me, I would have spent a thoroughly delightful evening. There was quite a poetic glamour over A.E.'s fanciful and beautiful rendering into dramatic form of the Deirdre legend. There was something about the play that took my fancy very much. What it was evades me as I write. Mr. W.B. Yeats' one-act play, Kathleen Nihulahan, was admirably played. It made a deep impression. Most of the sayings of the mysterious Kathleen, apart the tall and willowy Maud Gone, who chanted her lines with rare musical effect, and crooned fascinatingly, if somewhat indistinctly, and some lyrics found ready and apt interpretation from the audience, and they applauded each red-hot patriotic sentiment right-heartedly. Many that are red-cheeked now will be pale-cheeked. Many that have been born free to walk the hills and the bogs and the rushes will be sent to walk hard streets in far countries. Many a good plan will be broken. Many that have gathered money will not stay to spend it. Many a child will be born and there will be no father at its christening to give it a name. They that have red cheeks will have pale cheeks for my sake. And for all that, they will think they are well paid. They shall be remembered forever. They shall be alive forever. They shall be speaking forever. The people shall hear them forever. Did that play of mine send out certain men the English shot? A silly little play. Although we did not know it, we were witnessing the conception of the Irish National Theatre Society and the real beginning of the movement that was to bring us into the Abbey Theatre. The production of Deirdre and Kathleen Houlihan was the beginning of the movement that not only created a native drama in Ireland, but afterwards stimulated Scotland and Wales to follow her example. It gave to the Gael that which had never before existed in the history of the race, a means of expressing the national consciousness through the medium of the drama. We are still two years away from the Annus Mirabilis that Willie Fay called 1904 and the old grey facade on Marlborough Street. But as A.E. remarked to the Fays, everyone was writing plays both in Irish and in English. In the autumn of 1902, the year of Deirdre and Kathleen, two young men from Belfast took a train to Dublin. They were Bulmer Hobson and David Parkhill. Both were members of the Protestant National Association, a small group which had come together in Belfast to spread the ideas and principles of Wolf Tone and the United Irishmen. But Hobson himself can best tell the story. It was Maura Quinn who invited us to Dublin, and we met the whole crowd. Yeats, A.E., Cousins, the Fays, Seamus O'Sullivan, Fred Ryan, and a lot more. Everybody was most cordial and helpful, except Yeats, haughty and aloof. We wanted to put on in Belfast Yeats, Kathleen, Nehulahorn, and Cousins the Racing Lug. 
Dudley Diggs and Maura Quinn promised to come and act in her first production, but he each refused permission. When Maura reported this to Maud Gone, she said, Don't mind Willie. He wrote the play for me and he gave it to me. It's mine and you can put it on wherever you want to. So we put on Kathleen Nahulahan and the racing lug. But on the train back to Belfast, I struck the arm of my seat and I said to Park Hill, Damn yeats, we'll write our own plays. Which they proceeded to do. But first they had Dudley Diggs and Maura Quinn in the two plays at the St Mary Minor Hall. Gerald McNamara, the same who later wrote Thompson in Tiernanogue, wrote an account of that first Belfast performance. The Ulster branch of the Irish Literary Theatre made its first bow to the public in a small hall in Belfast. Small as this hall was. Eh? It was much too large for the audience who patronised them on those two November evenings. On the morning of the first performance, the members were carrying some old second-hand scenery up the stairs to the hall when they were stopped by the caretaker. Well, this hall is used for Sunday school. We'll have none of your damn scenery here. So the young enthusiasts were obliged to hire curtains to drape the hall in lieu of the damn scenery. The effect of the curtains was so novel at, the, at that time that the audience applauded the set as the curtain rose. The audience, however, were small and the receipts poor. Unlike Dublin, the Belfast playgoers seemed to want different fare. They were not taken by Kathleen de Houlihan. 99% of the population had never heard of the lady and cared less. In fact, some in the audience was heard to say... Well, we sure was going rightly till she came on. George Roberts, secretary of the Dublin group, wrote to David Parkhill to inform him that the Belfast actors had no authority to state that they were a branch of the Irish National Theatre Society or the Irish Literary Theatre, and he demanded royalties, which he certainly didn't get. The Ulster men, however, had a simple and direct answer to Roberts. They renamed their company the Ulster Literary Theatre and followed Hobson's frustrated feelings, damn Yates, we'll write our own plays, by doing exactly that and publishing their own literary review, Allah. Dear Mr Yates, we have decided to form a new society to be called the Irish National Theatre Society and at our meeting some nights ago it was decided to request you to become our president and it is our fervent hope that you will honour us by accepting the position. Our aim is to create an Irish National Theatre to act and produce plays in Irish or English written by Irish writers or on Irish subjects and such dramatic works of foreign authors as would tend to educate and interest the public of this country in the higher aspects of dramatic art. As to the future of the National Theatre Company, a wealthy friend said something to me like this. Work on as best you can for a year, let us say. You should be able to persuade people during that time that you are something of a dramatist and Mr. Fay should be able to have got a little practice for his company. At the year's end, do what Wagner did, and write a letter to my friends asking for the capital to carry out your idea. A wealthy friend was very shortly to make her appearance, but in the meantime the Fays were looking for a home for the new society. I searched Dublin north, south, east and west, and at last found in Lower Camden Street a very small hall in a woeful state of dilapidation, which the landlord was prepared to let for £40 a year. The place was just four bare walls and a roof. It was our job to make what we needed. 
with the aid of a carpenter and of any members who were anxious for a little hard work in the evenings, we set to. The hall was cold, and so was the audience, if you could call the few who turned up an audience. The roof leaked. One lady remarked, Well, you told me Mr. Yates was queer, but this is the queerest theatre that I ever saw. The evening mail. We find ourselves wondering whether it would not be possible to house more honourably the much-advertised Irish dramatic muse. Letter to the Freeman's Journal. Dear sir, why should the muse of Irish drama hold her levy in surroundings that would spell bankruptcy for a penny gaff? Why should she declaim from a stage that is not a stage, surrounded by scenery which is not scenery, to an audience that is cultivating rheumatism or pains in the spinal column on seats that have no backs? I may be told it is classic simplicity. I answer it is merely downright commonplace discomfort which not even a red-hot enthusiast would endure for long. To put it plainly, sir, if there is ever to be a national theatre, its promoters must remember the dignity of dramatic literature and the comfort of the play-going public. The American University professor Cornelius Weygandt was, however, a little more enthusiastic. It was a memorable experience to me, that of an August evening in 1902, on which I was taken to Camden Street to a rehearsal of the Irish National Dramatic Company. Our guide was Mr. James H. Cousins, and he piloted us to an entranceway by the side of a produce shop, we knocked at the door and waited and waited, and at last heard steps coming nearer and nearer. The door opened and revealed a young man in a workaday black suit with a candle in one hand and a property spear in the other. He conducted us down a narrow, drafty hallway into a hall in which were wooden benches as crude as those in the bandstand of a backwoods country fair in the States and a slightly raised platform at the farther end. We were soon in eager conversation with young store clerks and typists and artisans who were about to set to work at that in which their hearts lay, the interpreting of plays out of Ireland's heart. Whatever its shortcomings, this little hall became the first Irish theatre Though, as we discovered, it was completely unsuitable for public performances, it became our first headquarters, a meeting place where the foundations of the theatre were laid. We gathered around us that homogeneous collection of politicians, poets, artists and dramatists who formed the core of the movement. Among the constant visitors was Joseph Holloway. It breathed the air of unsophisticated bohemianism, and somehow or other gave the impression that if high art blossomed here, it did not mature in very luxuriant surroundings. Not many nights passed without some new face materialising from the murkiness of our entrance hall. James Joyce, a young clerk then, and his constant companion Oliver St. John Gogarty, and once George Moore with an air of sophisticated boredom, so far above our heads that few of us could talk to him coherently. A.E. muffled in his blanket-like coat, looking more like a benevolent uncle. And, of course, Lady Gregory, a pleasant, if at times rather condescending person, who treated us all rather as children in need of special advice. 
Then, one evening, Mr Stephen Gwynne, secretary of the London Irish Literary Society, arrived. He wants us to go to London. He says rooms are already booked in a hotel in South Kensington. Well, it'll be a most valuable experience, but what does Bill Butler think? He wants us to go. I suppose it'll give him a chance to make speeches. I'm very doubtful about it. Well, I know it must be over a weekend. None of us could get off for a full week. Oh, by the way, who's paying? All expenses, travel and etc. by the Irish Literary Society in London. I don't know. Oh, come on, Frank, we're off to London. This is one in the eye for the evening mail. The Queen's Gate Hall, South Kensington, May the 2nd, 1903. The Irish National Theatre Society present at the matinee, The Ardlass by W.B. Yeats, 25 by Lady Gregory, and Kathleen Newhoolahorn. Evening performance, The Pot of Broth by W.B. Yeats, The Laying of the Foundations by Fred Ryan. There was a review by William Archer in The World. I remained to admire and applaud with the utmost sincerity. The company indeed were amateurs, but in almost all of them there was a clear vein of talent and the work they presented was all of it interesting and some of it exquisitely and movingly beautiful. And a welcome home from Arthur Griffith in The United Irishman. Let us assure Mr. W.G. Fay that the fact of his taking his company to London would not make the slightest difference to our opinion of him and them. An opinion, one should add, not entirely unmixed. Meantime, Yeats, lending his aloof presence to the enthusiasm of the movement, was making speeches. Mr. W.B. Yeats was announced to lecture on the reform of the theatre between the two plays at the Molesworth Hall, his own The Hourglass, and Lady Gregory's 25, and duly came forward evidently to do so. He meandered on making many statements that no sane playgoer could agree with, trying to prove that acting should be something other than acting, and that stage plays should be something quite different also, in fact that nothing on the stage should be as it is. All this in his usual thumpy thigh, monotonous, affected, preachy style. He generally makes a mess of it when he orates, Kind friends ought to advise him to hold his tongue. But Bill Butler, as Willie Fay, part in affection, part in resentment called him, would do anything but hold his tongue. But his wealthy friend had been present at the performances at the Queen's Gate Hall in London and was on her way to Dublin. Meantime, others were appearing from the gloom of the murky entrance corridor in Camden Street. Mr John Millington Singh! Mr John Millington Singh! He was a gentle fellow, shy, with that deep sense of humour that is sometimes found in the quietest people. His bulky figure and heavy black moustache gave him a rather austere appearance, an impression quickly dispelled when he spoke. During rehearsals of Shadow of the Glen, he would sit quietly in the background, endlessly rolling cigarettes. At the first opportunity, he would lever his huge frame out of a chair and come up on the stage, a half-rolled cigarette in each hand. Then he would look inquiringly round and thrust the little paper cylinders forward towards whoever was going to smoke them. He became the terror of fire-conscious Abbey stage managers. He used to sit timidly in the wings during plays, rolling cigarettes and handing them to the players as they made their exits. On the stage, one must have reality and one must have joy. 
And that is why the intellectual drama has failed and people have grown sick of the false joy of the musical comedy that has been given them in place of the rich joy found only in what is superb and wild in reality. In a good play, every speech should be as fully flavoured as a nut or an apple and, and such speeches cannot be written by anybody who works among people who have shut their lips on poetry. Come along with me now, lady of the house. And it's not my blather you'll be hearing only, but you'll be hearing the herons crying out over the black lakes, and you'll be hearing the grouse and the owls with them, and the larks, and the big thrushes when the days are warm. And it's not from the like of them. You'll be hearing a tale of getting old like Peggy Kavanagh, and losing the hair off you, and the light of your eyes. But it's fine songs you'll be hearing when the sun goes up, and there'll be no old fella wheezing the like of a sick sheep close to your ear. I'm thinking it's myself will be wheezing that time, lying down under the heavens when the night is cold. But you've a fine piece of talk, stranger, and it's with yourself I'll go. And you, Daniel Burke, you think it's a grand thing you're after doing with your letting on to be dead. But what is it at all? What way would a woman live in a lonesome place the like of this place and she not making a talk with the men passing? And what way will yourself live from this day with none to care you? What is it you'll have now but a black life, Daniel Burke? And it's not love, I'm telling you, till you'll be lying again under that sheet and you're dead, surely. <laughs> First to leave the Molesworth Hall and the society were J.H. Cousins, Maud Gone and A.E., closely followed by Maura Quinn and Dudley Diggs. Here is the Irish Times on the play. This production, which has led to a succession or schism in the society, was received with mingled cheers and hisses. To speak candidly while admitting the cleverness of the dialect and the excellent acting of Nora and the Tramp, we found it exceedingly distasteful. It seemed to us an extraordinary choice of subject for a society that claims to have a higher and purer standard than ordinarily accepted in things dramatic. The Leader For its length, it is one of the nastiest little plays I have ever seen. Poor Sing. Bewildered by the attacks on the shadow of the glen, he retired completely into his shell. He was puzzled and very deeply hurt that his play should be received in such a fashion. His next play for us was Riders to the Sea, which we put on at our usual place, the Molesworth Hall, in February of 1904. There are together this time, and the end is come. May the almighty God have mercy on Bartley's soul and on Michael's soul and on the souls of Seamus and Patch and Stephen and Sean. And may he have mercy on my soul, Nora, and on the soul of every one is left living in the world.
Michael has a clean burial in the far north by the grace of the Almighty God. Bertley will have a fine coffin out of the white boards and a deep grave surely. What more can we want than that? No man at all can be living forever and we must be satisfied. The Irish Times. The idea underlying the work is good enough, but the treatment of it is to our mind repulsive. Indeed, the play develops into something like a wake. There are some things which are lifelike, and some are quite unfit for presentation on the stage, and we think that Riders to the Sea is one of them. The new leader. The most ghastly production I have ever seen on a stage. But there is hope for Mr. Singh if we can learn to avoid the morbid and to take a saner and less crabbed view of existence, I think he may be capable of writing a really valuable play. And George Moore? Uh, an experiment in language rather than a work of art, a, a painful rather than a dramatic story. Other plays were to follow. Tinker's Wedding, The Well of the Saints and The Playboy, which brought its own deluge of vituperation. But it was Yeats who had the last word. He had come towards nightfall upon certain set apart in a most desolate stony place towards nightfall upon a race passionate and simple like his heart. Now our stage directions should read Enter from the wings where she has been a keen observer an eccentric English lady dressed in an old maidenish fashion with a high lace neckband with pipings of black velvet, a gown of heavy tapestry with strange unexpected designs and most unusual jewellery, including a large dragon of oxidised silver, which she insists is a likeness of herself. Continue, please, and say how I once described myself. A middle-aged, middle-class, suburban, dissenting spinster. Both my grandparents kept small shops and I'm not ashamed of it. At 17, I had my own suite of rooms and, despite my father's objection, began smoking cigarettes and, on occasion, a pipe. I ride a man's bicycle, wear bloomers, and have crossed the Alps from Italy to Munich alone. I also make sure to address gatherings by the proper method, which is, of course, gentlemen and ladies. Yeats had met her when they were both members of the London Occult Society, the Order of the Golden Dawn and for a while she acted as secretary to the poet. I wish that I were still at hand to take care of you. When the demon is ill, it always seems as if I ought to attend to it. You are being made a slave by Lady Gregory. Your genius is being put under a net in that precious garden of hers at Cool, and you are only let out when you are wanted to get something out of me. In April 1904, she wrote to Yeats from London. Dear Mr. Yates, I have a great sympathy with the artistic and dramatic aims of the Irish National Theatre Company, as publicly explained by you on various occasions. I am glad to be able to offer you my assistance in your endeavours to establish a permanent theatre in Dublin. I am taking the hall of the Mechanics Institute in Abbey Street and an adjoining building in Marlborough Street, 
which I propose to turn into a small theatre with a proper entrance hall, green rooms and dressing rooms. The company can have the building rent-free whenever they want it, except when it is let. I can only afford to make a very little theatre, and it must be quite simple. You all must do the rest to make a powerful and prosperous theatre with a high artistic ideal. Yours sincerely, A. E. F. Horniman. Dear Miss Horniman, we, the undersigned members of the Irish National Theatre Company, beg to thank you for the interest you have evinced in the work of the Society and for the aid you propose giving to our future work by securing a permanent theatre in Abbey Street. We undertake to abide by all the conditions laid down in your letter to the company and to do our utmost to forward the objects of the society. W.B. Yeats, F.J. Fay, William G. Fay, James G. Starkey, Princius Macaulay, Uncreevy Neving, George Russell, Maura Nihuli, it was I found the theatre for her, and it came about, strangely enough, because of the Dublin Corporation's new fire regulations. There had been a fire at the Iroquois Theatre in Chicago, resulting in great loss of life, and also a bad fire in an English theatre, so the local authorities began to tighten up the theatre regulations, with the result that one of the oldest houses in Dublin had to close down. It was the old theatre at the Mechanics Institute. The old mechanics, with the big white posters out in Abbey Street. Now playing twice lightly, the momentous question. Shall I live with him or die with you? Songs, sketches and a story about eight in competition. Sixpence and threepence a school. Around the corner in Marlborough Street was the other building. The Dublin Savings Bank in 1834, then the Emigration Office. In 1863, it housed the National Brotherhood of St. Patrick, and after the Brotherhood came the Dublin Total Abstinence Society, in whose Coffee Palace in Townsend Street, the Fays had given their first public performances as the Ormond Dramatic Society. To supervise the work on a new theatre, I gave up my job. The theatre stood for everything in life that was of importance to Frank and me. All my friends and relatives said I was mad to throw away a good business to work in a theatre no one wanted and that couldn't last a year. Council Chamber of Dublin Castle, August the 4th, 1904. Application before the Solicitor General for Ireland, Mr. J.H. Campbell, K.C., in the name of Lady Augusta Gregory, on behalf of the Irish National Theatre Society, for patent to produce dramatic works at the premises hitherto known as the Mechanics Institute, Abbey Street. From the Privy Council, the patent applied for in the name of Lady Gregory enjoins and commands her to cater and entertain, govern, privilege and keep so many players, and by no means to put on the stage any exhibition of wild beasts and dangerous performances. Furthermore, no women or children are to be hung from the flies or fixed in positions from which they cannot release themselves. 
Of course, it was also set out in the patent that the society could perform plays in the Irish or English language written by Irish writers on Irish subjects and selected by the Irish National Theatre Society. The Irish Times had some stern words of advice to offer. We would like to give the members of the society a few words of advice. They ought not to obtrude plays in Irish. They ought not to favour works written by members. And they ought not try to be too austere or too exclusive. Not indeed, as time was to show that the advice was taken. The company in the meantime had been once more to London, this time to present five of their plays at the Royalty Theatre, bringing both the Sing plays and earning further acclaim. Walkley thought Yeats' curtain speech was too cock-a-hoop, and much preferred Willie Fay's modest and stammered thanks. Meanwhile, Joseph Holloway, although he was acting as architect to the new theatre in Abbey Street, was still finding time to write away at his fast-growing diary. An amusing incident, an echo of the past, one might term it, occurred at the Abbey Theatre this afternoon during one of my professional visits. Hearing a ring at the stage door, I opened it and found a man accompanied by a little boy there, who made this inquiry, Is there an inquest going on here today? Something of its former usage still clung to the new foyer. But instead of an inquest, there were rehearsals going on inside almost every night. Mr. W.G. Fay, during the rehearsal of On Borlius Strand, paced up and down in front of the performers, close to the fireproof curtain as he puffed at his pipe fitfully and relighted it frequently, throwing the lighted matches away with a recklessness as to the consequences. Every now and again he would pause in his walk and repeat a passage as he would like it said. This done to his satisfaction, he resumed his beat. With W.B. Yeats at the helm, I say without fear of contradiction that a more irritating play producer never directed a rehearsal. He's ever flitting about and interrupting the players in the middle of their speeches, droningly reading the passage in monotonous preachy sing-song and pacing the boards as he would have the players do. Frank Fay, I thought, would explode with suppressed rage. Miss Horniman, these costumes for my play just will not do. King Crowhall looks like a fire extinguisher in that red cloak. It must be red, Mr Yates. It must be a regal colour. He looks like Father Christmas. You players with the red cloaks, take them off. Ah, now that's better. No, Mr Yates, no, I must insist. It must be colour. Dim colours, Miss Horniman. All must contribute to a single effect. We are not doing pantomime. Here, you actors with the green cloaks, take them off. No, Mr Yates, not the green cloaks as well. They have too much fur on them. Where is the wardrobe, mistress? Mrs Esposito, take your sharpest scissors and remove the fur. But they are archaeologically correct, Mr Yates. Hang archaeology. Its effect we want on the stage. At the opening of the pretty little Abbey Theatre, the Messrs Fay covered themselves with glory, both as the guiding spirits of the new theatre and as actors. The night was a memorable one, and the house was thronged and genuinely enthusiastic. Everyone went away wishing for more. The Irish Times? The Irish National Theatre Society made its bow to an expectant audience at the newly acquired theatre in Abbey Street last night. Those who came by invitation, or by the simple British method of paying at the door, were much impressed by the change wrought externally and internally in the old theatre premises. Passing through the double glass doors, 
one entered a tiny lobby to the left of which was the green room. Around the vestibule hung portraits of Lady Gregory, Miss Horniman, Willie Fay and myself. Standing on the Abbey stage, the feeling, absent in so many other theatres of being one with the audience, was always present. We watched the auditorium through a crack in the curtain. The pit and gallery were full. The stalls were slower in filling, but the crowd was increasing all the time as they listened to the violin music of Arthur Darley, our one musician. Yates was impressive in evening dress and kept coming behind the scenes every few minutes to see how things were getting along. Willie Fay, dressed for his part, a wild wig slipping sideways over his elfin face, swung unexpectedly from a baton high in the flies, arranging the lighting. In a dark corner, sitting on an upturned property basket, sat Singh himself, rolling the inevitable cigarette. Somebody, it may well have been a young lad called Sean Barlow, struck the stage floor three times and there was a growing silence. The curtain rose slowly and revealed the setting for On Bolia Strand. Amber-coloured hangings draped the interior of a great hall. A huge door showed intricate Celtic interlacings on panel and lintel. When it opened, a glimpse was revealed of a luminous blue sky over a bay. Two plain thrones stood in the centre, brilliant hand-painted medallions were on the walls, and a golden arc played across the stage, helping the colourful costumes of King's councillors and the resplendent Cúhalin of Frank Fay. Because I have killed men without your bidding, and have rewarded others at my own pleasure, because of half a score of trifling things, you'd lay this oath upon me, and now... And now you add another pebble to the heap, and I must be your man, well nigh your bondsman, because a youngster out of Eofer's country has found the shore ill-guarded. He came to land while you were somewhere out of sight and hearing, hunting or dancing with your wild companions. I, whose mere name has kept this country safe, I that in early days have driven out Maeve of Crochen and the northern pirates, the hundred kings of Sarka and the kings out of the garden in the east of the world? Must I that held you on the throne when all had pulled you from it swear obedience as if I were some cattle-raising king? It was not a good fair, Mrs. Tarpey. It was a scattered sort of fair. If we didn't expect more, we got less. Ah, that's the way with me always. Whatever I have to sell goes down, and whatever I have to buy goes up. Ah, if there's ever any misfortune coming to this world, it's on me self it pitches, like a flock of crows on seed potatoes. Ah, the rain will be down on us by evening, and on myself too. Ah, it's seldom I ever started on a journey, but the rain will come down, and before I'll find any place of shelter. Ah, look at that. Now I've upset the basket. If there's any basket in the fair upset, it must be our own basket. <laughs> <laughs> that was Bartley Fallon in Spreading the News, which was the second play on the programme, and it closed with the play that in so many ways had started it all, a bare two years before, Kathleen Nihulahan. They shall be remembered forever. 
They shall be alive forever. They shall be speaking forever. The people shall hear them forever. Did you see an old woman going down the path? I did not. But I saw a young girl, and she had the walk of a queen. The evening ended too soon. Silently we gathered on the darkened stage, the muffled roar of the applause coming through the fallen curtain. Yates passed through the green room door, crossed the set, then stepped in front of the audience. We shall take as our mottoes those words written over the city of love by Edmund Spencer. Over the first gate was be bold. Over the second, be bold, be bold, and evermore be bold. And over the third, yet be not too bold. The tiny building vibrated with the echoes of the applause. Then quiet and the murmur of voices as the audience began to file out. Frank Fay spoke first. This is only the beginning. Only a beginning, but for many Dublin playgoers, visits to the Abbey soon became a magical experience. For sixpence, I have been to Tiernanog. No more I had to pay, and looked my fill at kings and gods and fools. May God be with the day. And all for sixpence I have heard fine talk from playboys, rogues and tramps, and so forgot the east wind in the streets, the fog, the dim-eyed lamps. Sixpence, the passport to this splendid world, enchanted, sad or gay, and you, the playboy of them all, I saw for sixpence, Willie Fay. The audience drift away into the December evening, well-wishers throng backstage to talk to the actors. The scenery is stacked to one side. Now it is a bare, dim stage, ready for the next performance, and all the performances to come, right up to our own time. How does the modern theatre compare with the Abbey of, say, 50 years ago? Sheila Richards played in some of the great productions of that era. Uh, it is tremendously different, you see, then. This was a little tiny affair with its own splendid audience and some um, splendid actors and but now it really is a big professional concern and I don't I'm not using professional in a derogatory which one could do I'm using it in the best sense I am not saying that the other was amateur um, but and no perish the thought, because as good actors as there are today in the Abbey, which indeed there are, there were some superb actors in those days too. Oh, the theatre wouldn't still be here if there hadn't been. As a young student, Joe Linane played with the Abbey Company here in Dublin and also touring America. 
What was the most important element in the work there, so far as he was concerned? What I loved was the comedy and the way it was played. Therefore, to me, it was a theatre of actors. I was interested, perhaps, in acting. Uh, more than production, more than the quality of plays. And this wonderful thing, where the whole theatre, like as if an electric spark was lit, and the whole theatre would erupt with the timing of the comic acting. Things like that appealed to me. Now, when I went to do it, I was so proud to get into a company that could perform like that, and eventually to be accepted in it. And nearly everything I played was a comedy part. Everything I did play was a comedy part. Therefore, I was proud that I followed in. In America, I played, you know, I played lots of things that Barry Fitzgerald played in the, in the not in the O'Casey, but in the uh, two young O'Casey parts, but in uh, George Shields' thing, like Professor Tim and all these kind of things. Now, that was the awe. I was delighted. And when the curtain went up, even though I was playing this waiter boy in the very first play I went into, I was aware that I was taking part in something that was historical and wonderful to me, even though I didn't want to continue in it, never intended to. Architecturally, of course, it was the most appalling theatre. You know how the balcony went round? If you're on the balcony, I don't know, unless you had eyes literally in the back of your head, how you could see what was going on on the stage. But the whole thing, oh, it had, uh, it had uh, an ambience and a rapport and all these uh, phrases that we like to trot out and pretend that we're very learned. They're not learned, but they're genuine in my case because I was aware that I was acting in, a, in an excellent, wonderful company. Phyllis Ryan, too, has memories of an earlier Abbey and the things that made it special for her at a time when she was a young girl in love with theatre. When I went into the company, that meant, of course, going into play there. I was playing there with them, with people like Barry Fitzgerald and F.J. McCormick and people like, who to me were, you know, just... I revered them. They were gods, and Eileen Crow, and and that wonderful, wonderful comedy lady Maureen Delaney, whose timing has never since been equaled in my estimation, from what I remember then. But I was kind of at first protected by being so young in a gym frock, turning up from school, and in another way, after a bit, so overawed that I couldn't even get my words out on the stage. I mean, I was terrified. And um, I remember that whereas people were very kind, they were very apt to keep you in your place and not to make you think that here you are suddenly one of the great Abbey Company because they were very conscious of the dignity um, of their achievement in, in themselves becoming respected members of the Abbey Theatre. I understand that very well now because I don't see the same attitudes. You addressed everybody as Mr. and Miss. You never um, took liberties. Uh, you didn't do strange things like um, going out during a performance, maybe, and um, you were always conscious that you had a great um, tradition to live up to. And if you weren't conscious enough, they were going to see that you that you got that feeling loud and strong. Gabriel Fallon recalls the unique atmosphere playgoers found at the Abbey Theatre in those days. There was an atmosphere, hard to describe. But the very moment you came into that vestibule and saw the fabulous looking dragon things holding up the lights and so on, and you saw the various pictures around, and you went round into the little bar for your coffee, there was an atmosphere in going to the Abbey. And even if you went in on the back pit, there was a fellow who used to say, as he took your ticket, go to market. And you felt, oh, this is real Irish. 
on playing doubles all the early she knew, you see. And he used to work in the junior army and navy stores. That sort of thing. And Gabriel Fallon sums up what was to him the most important and lasting achievement of the Abbey Theatre movement. The theatre that could produce uh, these masterpieces, which have been translated wholly or in part into more than 32 of the world's known languages, has justified itself. Let us turn back the clock again to the empty, echoing stage after that splendid first night. There are two figures there, one raincoated, bespectacled, smoking that eternal pipe, the other overcoated, sombre, more schoolteacher than actor, listening, not speaking, as if suddenly aware of that touch of immortality and its bitter caress. Soon, too soon, half their fine company would depart. Soon, too, a matter of four short years, and they too would be gone, in the case of Willie, never to return. Yet they, these two, had been the begetters, even if not the only begetters. We owe our National Theatre Society to W.G. Fay and his brother, and we have always owed to his playing our chief successes. Yeats was to qualify that opinion later on, but here is George Russell. Yeats, Martin and Moore started the Romantic movement so far as the writing is concerned in modern Ireland, but the two Fays are entitled entirely to the credit of starting an Irish school of acting. Without them, it could not have been done. And George Moore. Mr Fay is the founder of the Irish National Theatre. He has managed very well. He managed to struggle on, and one should not ask more of any man. He has received very little support, but that, after all, cannot be truly said of a man who has found an admirer to buy him a theatre. The ancient concert rooms is the Academy Cinema in what is now Pierce Street. The Molesworth Hall was demolished just over two years ago. St. Teresa's Hall in Clarendon Street is still in use, though not for plays. The Fays Theatre in Camden Street is now a dismal backyard. And the old Abbey building has given way to that massive grey block on the corners of Abbey and Marlborough Streets. Yeats' portrait dominates the brown wood foyer, but upstairs, flanking the balcony entrance, are the two Fay brothers, and about them some of that first splendid company of 75 years ago. The audiences drift in, the seats fill up. From behind the green curtain, the familiar sound. Another performance, after so many over the years, has begun. O oh, kinsmen of the three in one, O oh, kinsmen, bless the hands that play, the notes they waken shall live on when all this heavy history's done. Our hands, our hands must ebb away. The proud and careless notes live on, but bless our hands that ebb away. <laughs> 